0: Once upon a time, a long, long time ago, 2600 years ago, the, the Buddha was staying in what is currently Sarnath, in, uh, which is just north of Varanasi, Varanasi in India, in Deer Park. And it was just uh, a couple of months after he had fully awakened And actually, you can go to Sarnath now. There's a stupa where uh, he gave this first teaching in a a park. It's really quite a lovely place just north of Varanasi there. And while he was staying there, he met his five former friends who he'd been doing uh, all kinds of these crazy ascetic practices with. Serious practices of self-mortification and self-deprivation, really abusing their bodies. And when I heard this part of the story, it it was kind of a relief to me to know that the Buddha also did really stupid stuff with his friends before he started on this path. (laughs) Isn't that a relief to know that he too did those things? I think the ascetic practices were kind of the equal of maybe alcohol and smoking dope and all those other things (laughs) that we do. So that's what he was doing with his friends and um, stupid ascetic practices. And then he found the, the real path and, and woke up. And here again, he meets together with these five former friends. And of course, this is, this is what happens, especially those of you who uh, maybe are in recovery know this, is when his, first, uh, when his five companions saw him again, they were really suspicious of him because he wasn't doing all these ascetic practices anymore. And maybe you know that feeling, you know, you I remember that feeling of a friend not using anymore and still using and being like they're so boring now, you know, what are they doing with their life? <laughs> so here they were and they yet they graciously at least offered uh, the seat a seat for the Buddha on the ground. And as he sat there and they gathered around out of curiosity, he taught them this first teaching. And it was the teaching of the Four Noble Truths. And at the end of this first discourse, this comes from the Dhammachaka Bhavatana Sutta, this first discourse, his his friend, Kondanya, came to the first stage of awakening, his heart opened. There's actually a famous phrase in Pali, anyasi watabo Kandanyo, which got shortened to anya Kandanya, the one who has realized. And tonight I'd like to share with you some reflections on the Four Noble Truths and tie it into this practice that we're doing, this practice of being the door person. Yet at the same time, I definitely don't want to guarantee that anything's going to happen at the end of this. <laughs> I ain't no Buddha. But you never know. And so the story goes, a few days after this, the Buddha gave uh, Kondanya another teaching um, from this other discourse, the Natalakana Sutta. And it was there where uh, Kondanya's heart completely opened, where there was a full awakening. So who knows, maybe tomorrow night, Brent Silver will give us the teaching that will fully open our hearts. That's my plug for you, for your talk. So the Four Noble Truths, and I want to point out, this is just one rendition. I'm trying to give one frame. There's so many different ways of, of uh, approaching the Four Noble Truths. And again, so much of this will be reminders for many of you and maybe something new for for some of you. That first ennobling truth, the truth that there is suffering, this is part of the human experience. It's simply this common denominator for being a human being. And there's a task that goes along with this first noble truth is to understand to understand this dynamic of suffering. And then the second ennobling truth, the condition that gives rise to suffering, which very simply is craving, which, which is a word that encompasses this reactivity in the mind. And when I say reactivity, I mean this tendency for the mind to gr- obsessively grasp onto experience or obsessively push experience away or to check out in some manner. And the task there is to abandon, abandon reactivity, abandon craving. And then the third noble truth, the the truth of cessation. When, When craving is abandoned, when reactivity is abandoned, suffering ceases, this taste of freedom. And the task there is to realize, to realize this. And then the fourth noble truth, the the truth of the path leading to this cessation. And the task there is to develop, to cultivate that path. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to use a an example of something that happened uh, to me on retreat, as a kind of an example to help us move through these, these four ennobling truths. And you'll hear, you know, much of this talk is going to be really about how to navigate challenge on, on retreat in particular. Uh, tomorrow morning, I might say more about the subtlety or the mundane things that arise. But tonight the more of the frame will be around challenge. So quite a few years ago, I was doing a long retreat at a place called the Forest Refuge. I was there for a few months. And it felt like, God, it must have been it felt like it was going on and on and on that I had one story stuck in my head. So what happened was about a few weeks before I went on retreat, I had this really nasty interaction with um, someone in my community that, at least according to my perspective, went the wrong way in a really serious way. And as a result, my, my mind was just totally obsessing with this, with this interaction. And just as a side note, as I'm sharing this story with you, really feel free to put your favorite challenge in here, whether it be the, the obsessive story about some interpersonal challenge that might be like this, or the challenge around some kind of physical pain that you're dealing with, or boredom, or the fantasizing about your next vacation, or worrying about what's gonna happen at work, whatever it is, it's easy to insert in this. And so much of the, of the obsession was it would bounce back with around and around to something's wrong with him, to something's wrong with me. And it was like the mind was just trying to figure this out in some kind of way. And then it was also the problem of experiencing it on retreat and this feeling of like, what am I doing wrong? What am I doing wrong in my practice to make this happen? Why is this happening? And that question of how can I let go of this so that I can move on with my practice because I felt like I really hit this wall. So I felt like I I was noticing it, but it just kept on coming back and back and back. Maybe some of you experienced this in your life or on retreat. Maybe I'm alone, I don't know. So how to to frame what I did through the the first, uh, these Four Noble Truths. So the first step around this that started to, to start to unfold was just a simple recognition, "Ouch, this is difficult. This is challenging." Because in some ways, that was the sinking into beginning to understand that, that task of the first noble truth, to understand, "Oh, there is suffering." Because where I was kind of landing with this experience before that was, this shouldn't be happening and when i'm lost in the story this shouldn't be happening i'm not really touching the experience i'm trying to move on from it before before really tasting it before truly understanding it and this started the first turn i could say into the practice ouch this is difficult and then what came with that was this very significant turn, which, which to me is so important in practice, which is this, this turning towards a yes. So I want to say a little bit about this practice of really bringing in this quality of yes to a challenge. Because there's something so powerful when a no becomes a Yes. There's this beautiful poem by Lucille Clifton called A Poem Beginning and No, and Ending and Yes. Actually, she really is quite an incredible poet. She she actually went to Howard University in the 50s and then I think her poetry was discovered in the early 60s by Langston Hughes and he put it into one of his anthologies of poetry. And then from there, Her uh, career poetry really took off. She was, I think, the poet laureate of Maryland in the late 70s, early 80s. And this poem uh, was in honor of Hector Peterson, a boy of 13. He was the first child to be killed in the Soweto riot in South Africa in 1976. And the Soweto uprising was a, a significant turning point in the uh, in the anti-apartheid movement. So the poem the poem begins with the with the one word, no. Light. There was no light at first around the head of the young boy. Only the slim stirring of Soweto. Only the shadow of voices, students and soldiers practicing their lessons, and one and one cannot even be two in Afrikaans. Then before the final hush in the schoolyard in Soweto, there was the burning of his name in the most amazing science, the most ancient prophecy let there be light, and there was lights around the young boy, Hector Peterson, dead in Soweto, and still among us. Yes. An event that must have felt like such a tremendous no, the loss of a child. And yet with the fall of apartheid, the fight against apartheid, it's like his life was transformed into some kind of yes, an empowering yes for an entire community, for an entire nation. And it's not a way of denying the tragedy of the Soweto uprising, but rather to honor the movement forward that came from that. And I feel at least in some small way, when we can take our no's and to transform them into a yes, that's when the practice starts to move in a different direction. can you say yes to whoever you're saying no in your practice? What are the things that are arising in your practice where there's the no or the exclusion? And can you turn it into, yes, this is the first step forward. This is the, the, the gateway to my freedom, to my awakening. And I want to point out for me what I noticed, this one step, this one step of transforming the "no into a yes" is actually a big step. And it's not an easy step. But once I can do that, then then things start to have a bit more of a smoothness. It doesn't mean that practice is easy or straightforward, but then I'm committed to it in a different way. And I, I now have included that piece of my, my experience that has been excluded. And this, I think, is so much of this first noble truth is turning that no into a yes. And when I think of the door person, that's what the door person's doing, right? The door is open. The, the, the door has that sign of yes on it. I turn it around so that I'm there, I'm present, I'm being with what's, what's arising. And then there were further steps, which actually felt smaller but still significant in terms of this first noble truth, is to really see the suffering, or better put better than seeing, to feel it, to feel into this experience of this, this whole memory coming up again and, again and again and again. And the trick, and this I think it can be really helpful for challenges, especially if there's some quote-unquote object or some story around it, is I needed to divide um, the the internal experience from the quote-unquote object, from the person. Because what I was doing is I was so obsessed about the person that I wasn't really touching the the felt experience of that. So this dividing. Oh, it's not about the person. Oh, it's about this feeling of anger or resentment or fear. Oh, that's that's where I need to turn my attention. Ah, that's the yes. And then to notice the cascading of thoughts and memories and sensations, and especially emotion, to catch the emotion, to feel the emotion that felt like it was underneath it all at times. And I want to point out, when this was going on retreat, I was not holding on to this experience. So I'd be doing what you're doing here. I'd be paying attention to the breath and then at times it would arise. And sometimes it would arise and it'd linger and then I was with it. But then when it passed away, it passed away. Sometimes it was there just momentarily. Sometimes it wasn't there at all. Sometimes it, was, it felt like it was there forever. So I was not doing the practice of, quote unquote, I have a problem and I need to bring it up in my meditation and pay attention to it. It's just allowing the natural unfolding of my experience and trusting that. It wasn't there actually to work through this. I was just there to notice what was arising and passing away. It's just that this was arising and passing away a lot. But I think this is an important thing that, that the intention here, at least in this formal practice, is not to process something or work through something. It's to be with what arises. So I was with this when it arose and when I was with and I wasn't when it, when it wasn't there. And I think this is helpful to see this also is that this process, so much of how we're with these kinds of unfoldings is in some ways a fragmented way. It arises for a while and then maybe passes away. There's a strong emotion there in your experience for a little while and then it passes away. Then you're with the breath and then you're with a sound and then you're with a sensation just to trust that unfolding. And what it needed is it needed my diligence, my diligence of my willingness to be with it. This is what embodied this yes. And it was the repetition of being with it. And quite honestly, I just want to be more precise about this, is that, Sometimes I was with it, and sometimes I was lost in it, and that was just the nature of it. Sometimes I hit it spot on, you could say, and there was really a quality of presence of really feeling into it, and other times I was just back in the whole mess and lost in it. That's normal. That's the way this unfolds. Have you noticed that? And that's why it needs diligence, because it's going to be messy in that way. One quote that I find helpful in this arena from Michael Jordan. We always got to bring Michael Jordan into a Dharma talk, don't we? <laughs> but I love this quote. He said, I think he's just talking about his professional career, um, maybe not when he was playing college ball. Just There's sometimes always one person in the crowd and I want to always honor this person just so if there's someone... Michael Jordan was this famous basketball player just to make sure we're on. <laughs> you never know. I, I definitely have friends that would not know. <laughs> that don't want to assume anything. So he says, I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games This is the real kicker for me. He says, 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot and missed. I failed over and over and over again in my life, and that's why I succeed. Can you imagine somebody gives you the ball to make the game-winning shot? Hundreds of thousands of people. Probably people betting all kinds of money that they don't have on that shot. (laughs) And you miss it. And then to do that 26 times. Sometimes meditation feels like that to me. (laughs) So it takes that willingness to, to show up again and again and again with that diligence and that ease. And I I can't emphasize this enough. If you're going to remember one thing from my talk, it's this, the importance of the willingness again and again in the face of missing so many shots. Because, right, we do. We miss so many shots. We miss, the, the mindfulness doesn't always stick. So we need to be diligent, but also easeful. For example, about a month ago, I decided to go out and shoot some hoop. It was not a pretty sight, I don't want to say that. But one of the interesting things about it, which was such a learning lesson for this practice, is that I could notice what could start to happen when I missed so many shots is that my body would start to tighten up and then it'd even get worse. But if I could have an ease of not being so concerned Not getting so obsessed if the ball went into the basket or not. There could be an ease in my body, and then it could start to have a rhythm to it. It was the ease with the diligence. If I was only diligent, it didn't really work. If I was only easeful, it didn't work. I needed both of these qualities. I think it's the same with what we're doing here. It's the diligence of being mindful again and again and again, and not getting so hooked about how many times your mind has been lost just beginning again and again and again. And a sincere willingness is so powerful in our life, especially when it's combined with being a door person. One story about this. This is... a. Uh... Story by about the Zen monk hermit Ryokan. I think he was uh, around in the late 19th century, and a very diligent practitioner. And and actually, was practicing, of course, alone in his in his hut. And his brother somehow contacted him and said. Ryokan, I'm wondering if you can help me out. Things are going really poorly in my life. And my son is uh, taken to drinking and gambling, and he's gambling away our uh, the money for, from our family, and I need some help with with your nephew. And I can imagine, especially when you hear the stories about Ryokan, he was probably hes- hesitant and nervous, and then eventually decided to um, go visit his brother and try to help out it's important to remember, Ryo Khan, in many of these stories, he is an eccentric fellow. He's really quite unique. And so after a few days, he goes and uh, decides to go and visit his, his brother and his brother's family. And he gets there, and he pays respect to his brother and his brother's wife and their nephew, the son. And immediately, he goes into the guest room, shuts the door, and he doesn't come out for three days. <laughs> So I'm sure his brother's thinking, "What's up with this? You know, I invite my brother, the monk, to help me with my son, and all he's doing is sitting in meditation in his room. He was only supposed to be there for three days." <laughs> so at the end of the time, Ryo Khan comes out, and uh, he's getting ready to leave, and he's sitting on a bench, and. Uh, his nephew, Ryokan's nephew, is putting his sandals on for him. So the nephew is putting on Ryokan's sandals. And I don't know if you've ever seen the sandals, actually they're still worn in uh, Rinzai and uh, Soto Zen tradition. You, you tie them up in a very particular way. So out of respect, the nephew was tying Ryokan's sandals as, as so he was down on the floor as Ryokan was on the bench sitting there. And as he was tying Ryokan's sandals, a teardrop, from Ryokan's eye dropped onto the sandal in front of the nephew. And then Ryokan left. Days went on, a week or two, and his brother contacted him and said, thank you, thank you so much for coming. And being with us, you know, the my son was so moved by your presence and things have really turned around with the gambling and the drinking. It's really amazing. Sometimes a teardrop can transform. when it's fueled by a willingness, a sincere willingness. And what I imagine is, when Ryo Khan got there, what I imagine is he probably didn't know what to do. But he knew if he was sincere in his care for his nephew, he was sincere in his intention, willing in his intention, that that was enough. And I appreciate this, that really what practice is, at least for me on re- retreat, is it's not about getting it right. It's about being sincere. It's about being willing to show up again and again and again in whatever way that I can. And can you trust that? Because that's what's so transformative. I don't need to know how this works. I just need to have the sincerity of allowing it to work, of putting forth this effort of being present. So, back to my problem on that (laughs) retreat. So here it was, the mind obsessing. And here's the repetition, right? Just being mindful as best as I can, feeling into it as best as I can in the moments where there's a quality of presence. And of course, the mind is being, getting lost here and there. But it's the repetition of that. And it was through that that then there's the unfolding of this second noble truth of beginning to clearly see what was going on, beginning to clearly see the craving that was there. Because really, what was really going on in the mind? It was just that the mind was obsessed around a thought, a thought pattern. That person that I was having so much difficulty with, they weren't on the retreat. It actually had nothing to do with that person. And precisely what was going on is there's a thought arising and around that thought is that it felt unpleasant, which also had unpleasant sensations associated with with it in, in the body. And then what was heaped on top of that unpleasant experience was the mind was screaming, I don't want this. Reactivity. And that was the clear scene. Oh, this is what it is. Oh, it's a thought that's unpleasant, filled with unpleasant sensations. And there's such a strong not wanting. Ah, this is what's going on. Interesting. It's just like this. This is what I need to feel. This is what I need to see into. And then seeing that over time, wisdom began to do its work, which is really the work of the second noble truth. Remember, the task of the second noble truth is to abandon craving. And what I want to point out is that I don't do the abandoning. Wisdom does the abandoning. Right? When I was speaking to you about the door person, the door person's just seen. I, I didn't give you any instruction about letting go. Wisdom lets go. I just need to see clearly. And when the mind and heart sees clearly, letting go will happen. Which is a relief. Because all I need to do is to notice. And then wisdom will do the rest of the work. I want to say a little bit more about this word abandoning because I think it can be um, difficult to understand or, or really quite unclear. First of all, as I was saying, is I don't do the abandoning. Abandoning is not seeing that the experience that arising is bad. That's not abandoning. Abandoning is not the thought I shouldn't be feeling this way or trying to get rid of the feeling. It's fully feeling into it and then allowing the mind and heart to let go or to open in a way that it's no longer reactive. The Buddha gives a striking image when he's talking about this quality of abandonment. And the image that he gives is a seafaring ship that's been, so a ship, a sail ship, you could say a sailboat that's been um, brought up onto dry land, and then over the months and weeks, you can say the weeks and months and years, what happens to the rigging on the ship, so the sails and the ropes and things like that from the the exposure to the wind and the rain and the sun, they just start to wear away and fall away. And the Buddha says, oh, just so, just so. In this way, this is how a, a practitioner abandons the fetters, abandons reactivity. And do you hear in that image, there's not a lot of doing. It's a letting be. And then there's a falling away that happens. Again, you just have one job, just to be the door, door person. Allowing wisdom to do the work of letting go, of releasing allowing the wisdom that works through the sun and the wind and the rain on the rigging to make this happen. This is the falling away of reactivity. I also want to uh, just give a side note here, a caveat which is important to know and sometimes I think this isn't spoken about enough, is sometimes mindfulness doesn't work on retreat. Notice that? And what I mean by that is that mindfulness can get overwhelmed. Sometimes something can be so intense that you can try and try and try to get the ball in the hoop and it just, you're not even gonna hit the backboard. (laughs) because sometimes experience can be really intense. It has nothing to do with us or as if there's something wrong with us. It's just the way it is. I don't know if I've ever met a practitioner who hasn't had the experience at some time of mindfulness not working. And I named this so that you can start to track this of bringing in other things when it feels like mindfulness really is totally not working. And what I mean that mindfulness is not working, that's different than simply being lost in the story and in the mess, but it just feels like you have no bearings anymore. So when that happens to me, I go to something else, which I find really helpful. I go to a few different things. One is is self-compassion. Because sometimes what I've done is I've gotten myself in such a tangle of trying to be present that I'm just being really hard on myself. And all I need to do, and for me, it's now come down to one word. If I can get one word to arise in my mind around something that's starting to be overwhelming, it can remind me of self-compassion. And it's the one word of ouch. It's so helpful because it cuts through all my trying to figure out. And what that ouch implies is, ouch, this is difficult and I'm having a hard time, and I actually care about it. I care about myself. And this is hard. So, ouch, and I care. And what happens with that is then I'm not trying to kind of figure my way through it, and there's a softening that happens. Oh, that's what's going on. This is just tough. And I care about myself in this tough situation. And sometimes I come back to that again and again. Ouch, this is difficult, and I care. And then, I think some of you know with self-compassion practice, another piece which is really great is to universalize it, the sense of, and other human beings probably right now are ex- experiencing something similar. Oh, this is what it is to be a human being. It's actually going back to the First Noble Truth in some ways. And if it's really too much, then I... I take a mindful break. I do for a long walk. If I'm in the sit, I look around. I reach out. That's the wonderful thing about these signups with, uh, with Dawn is that there's support in some kind of way. I think this is important to remember to also take it out of the realm of that there's something wrong with me or what, where my mind goes what to, I suck at this. <laughs> Those are my two favorites. <laughs> Kind of similar. It's just what it is to be a human being, and this happens. And these are just a couple tools that might be helpful. In particular, self-compassion. And and please remember it and. and Uh, Matthew was talking about this tonight as well, but again I want to just remind everyone, because I know I forget this so often, is that if I'm doing my job as the door person, sometimes what happens is that I feel like um, wisdom should be doing its job just as quickly as possible. (laughs) And I'm bummed out when it doesn't show up. But, But wisdom has its own timetable. Like it It's the way it works its job is very different than the way I've worked jobs. And I have to remember that. That this can, you know, some challenges can go on for quite a while, and that's just the way it is. So not having this, what I call this kind of bargaining mindfulness, that I'm willing to be aware of this as long as it goes away quickly. And I've engaged in that kind of mindfulness so much. I mean, it's the kind of mindfulness I'm still looking for. <laughs> it just doesn't work so much, and it's not in my job description. I'm just simply there to show up for what's going on. And then wisdom, wisdom will do its work when, when it's supposed to do its work. And then there's the third noble truth. That when reactivity... Ceases, suffering ceases. There's peace or the Pali word Nibbana. And I want to say there's there's so many different, there's a whole spectrum, I'd like to say, of the, of the third noble truth of this realization to realize this. But I also want to make it practical for what we're doing here. And the way to make it practical is to notice the moments during your day when they're is no reactivity in the mind when there's simply a quality of presence. This is probably happening for every single one of you, moments of this, where there's just feeling the breath, where there's simply a hearing a sound, tasting a taste, and it's just this. Even if it's there for a second or two seconds to savor that. Buddhadasa Bhikkhu, who is a... a a prominent monastic in Thailand, would talk about it in terms of Nibbana for everyone. (laughs) Here's this gateway into tasting this freedom. It comes back to this this, uh, skill that I was encouraging you to explore in the first talk, which is this quality of savoring. Can you savor when the mind is at peace and to notice it? Because you're probably overlooking it. We're so geared to seeing what's wrong, for good reason. I mean, it keeps us, you know, probably all of our ancestors for those hundreds of thousands of years. We're doing that, and now we're here because of that. But, so there's a place for that, of course, in terms of survival. But can you open up this other thing of savoring, savoring the peace, the contentment that might be there? Don't overlook it. These are moments. These are our moments of freedom that can lead to bigger freedoms. So an encouragement to, to taste that. And yet at the same time, I don't want to diminish the full spectrum of the possibility of awakening and freedom, which I think sometimes can happen. I think sometimes we get so lost in this nibbana for everyone that we can we can forget uh, our potential, forget the potential of of human beings. I mean, we see it in other domains of really sometimes quite beautiful and amazing and exceptional um, abilities of people. For those of you in the Bay Area, Steph Curry, it's incredible watching him play. I am never gonna shoot three-pointers like Steph Curry but it's, it's, there's something that can uplift my heart to know that there's this whole spectrum. Not only that, but even exceptional and amazing uh, depth in terms of ability of just the mind. Catherine right? Johnson, the aerospace technologist and mathematician, the, the woman who calculated trajectories for so many of the NASA space, space flights. I'm so, sure many of you know no, Hershey made famous from that movie, Hidden Figures. An exceptional mind that brought such an amazing thing to to our world. And I think in the same way, this is so possible for this path. For example, Don the other day was mentioning Deepa Ma, this this really quite an exceptional practitioner of the of the twentieth century. And Don sharing with us when she was asked what arose in her mind. Just those three things. Oh, all that arises in the mind now is loving kindness, concentration, and peace. There really is this potential, this profound potential of of our hearts and our minds when we do this practice. Please don't underestimate that. And remember, the Buddha was just like this, right? He, He also, as I began with, he was hanging out with those dubious friends doing those really screwed up practices. Just because we might have done those kinds of things in our life doesn't mean that there's no potential for awakening in our life. And then the fourth noble truth, the path is to be cultivated. What is the path? The path is just what I described. It's the yes. It's the being with. It's the opening so that wisdom can do its work of abandoning so that we can taste, we can taste freedom. So may our practice of the Four Noble Truths on this retreat go towards the liberation of all beings let's just sit for a moment here